0: Hey, everybody. Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. You guys, welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here. I was certainly glad I was here for this interview today. We're in a series called For the Love of Therapy. We've had so many therapists on the show, but we decided to dedicate an entire series to a conversation with therapists and just feels timely right now while so many of us are just picking through every manner of loss or change or sorrow both personally and in the world. Dr Sarah Kubrick is known maybe for more so as being the very popular millennial therapist on Instagram but she's of course more than that she she calls herself an existential psychotherapist she's a consultant she's a writer she's a columnist for USA Today on top of being a Nomad, which we're going to talk about in a second. She is the author of a really great book, her debut book called It's On Me Accept Hard Truths, Discover Yourself, and Change Your Life, which also we're going to discuss. Just came out in September. So Dr. Kubrick has lived in Europe, the Middle East, North Africa, currently Australia, and all of that really in just the last six years. So She has a really interesting and beautiful wealth of knowledge about humanity just from her own lived experiences. And what she brings to the table as a therapist is clear how much she has been inspired by this specific brand of humanity that she has personally witnessed. She sums it up with this line on her website, which I love. She said, my interest in psychology stems from my personal experience living through wars navigating complex relationships and continually learning what it means to be human. I mean you can see why we love her and wanted her on the show. As you might imagine, her work has been featured in tons of outlets we love. Oprah Daily, Marie Claire, Cosmopolitan, Women's Health, The Guardian, it just goes on and on and on. She offers online therapy services that are grounded in honesty and openness with a dash of humor, my favorite. She specializes in identity, moral trauma, relationships, life transitions, and anxiety. Isn't that all of us? At least a couple of those for sure. So, Dr. Kubrick got the title Millennial Therapist from sharing tips that kind of normalize human experiences and encourage this self reflection. And so, her Insta is incredible. You're going to want to follow her immediately at millennial.therapist. It's jam packed with just Excellent, excellent, excellent stuff. And so if you haven't already, go give her a quick follow. And I think you're going to love this conversation. I found it honest and truthful and certainly hopeful. So without any further ado, enjoy my conversation with the wonderful Dr. Sarah Kubrick. Dr. Kubrick, hi. Hi. I'm so happy to meet you. I am so interested in you and your work and kind of the way that you are bringing your expertise to bear in the world right now. And so I have been totally looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for your time. Time is our hottest commodity. I know it.
1: It is, but thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. My whole team is so excited. They love you. They were like fangirling and I was like, we're doing this. I'm excited.
0: <laughs> okay, listen, that's cute. I've told my listening community a little bit about who you are. I kind of high-leveled your impressive credentials, but I wonder before we sort of drill into some of the questions I have for you, would you give us a little sneak peek behind the curtain at, well, first of all, your deal like this is where you are from and this is your people and this is your life and then how you got into this field in the first place to begin with and then how the millennial therapist account came about where how and when that emerged because you have this really interesting niche spot as not just a therapist but a self-proclaimed existentialist
1: it's very interesting all so can you sort of Get us up to speed with you. So I'm Sarah Kubrick, often known as Millennial Therapist. I feel like people know me by that handle more than my name, which is always a little fascinating. And yeah, so I currently dwell in Australia, but I was actually born in Bosnia. And as the war erupted right after I was born, and then we moved to Serbia, and then several years later, another war Corrupted in Serbia and then we immigrated to Canada so my childhood story is is a dense one but I think it lends itself perfectly to why I got into the work that I do which is just trying to understand humanity I think I was very confused as a child as any child would be watching that kind of terror and suffering and I just could understand why people would want to hurt one another. I think that's the most like naive, the most like reduced question I had, like why I don't understand why. And so I think I got into psychology to try to understand what makes humans tick, try to understand my own human experience. And that was probably the, you know, the initial reason I went to university at 17 to study psychology. And then that evolved into wanting to assist and help and alleviate the suffering to the best of my abilities to those that would allow me to journey with them.
0: Let's talk about how you found your way into this interesting corner of the world with millennials, particularly, but you as their muse. And so how did that begin? How did that become really what you've built, which is a community, a whole community of really engaged and smart and interesting people.
1: Yeah, I love my community. I I think they're the best. I think what happened was after grad school, I started my doctorate really quickly. And I, at the time, was doing my doctorate in Vienna, Austria. And I was also living in the Middle East and doing research in the Middle East. So that meant I was traveling a lot. And this is kind of my story for the last almost decade now living as a nomad. And what I realized was that I had no sense of community. Like I felt like I couldn't, you know, do workshops and I couldn't advocate for mental health in a traditional sense. And so I was like, I'm going to start Instagram. And this is still when Instagram was primarily a photo based platform. It's really not that long ago, like in 2019, I think people are still like, why are you doing infographics on Instagram? And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to give myself six months. It's going to be so embarrassing. And then I'm going to quit. Like if nothing happens, if I still have 200 followers and my mom is the first to like all my posts, I'm going to quit after six sure. months. <laughs> Got it. Uh, and <laughs> Yeah. And I think being on Instagram was an interesting journey for me because, you know, everyone's like, what's your voice? What's your angle? How are you going to talk about it? And I think this is where I kind of really leaned into existentialism. And part of the reason was because that's how I understand problems that's how I understand our human experience. And so for me, I didn't want to put on a hat of like Sarah, the therapist, Sarah, the teacher. I really wanted to be like, this is how I experience the world. This is how I see suffering. Does this resonate? And if it doesn't, that's okay. Let's exchange our experiences. And so I think the existentialism was just something that kind of came out. You know, When I was a kid, I read a lot of Dostoevsky. I read a lot of existentialists because of my life experiences. And then I was trained in existential analysis. My doctorate was heavily based on phenomenology, which is an existential concept. So, you know, I self-proclaimed, also studied existentialism for many years. Therefore, that's just how I see the world now.
0: This is way too broad a question, and I wish you well in your answering of it. Oh, but no. If you were just going to say all right I'm talking to a bunch of non-therapists who probably have not done doctoral work around existentialism so if you were just to say in general this is my perspective this is what that means this is this is how I view suffering this is how I view the human experience this is what this means in practical terms
1: yeah love the question and yeah I think the easiest way would be my book titled. Yeah. <laughs> it's on me. I think I just have such an understanding of that life happens to us, but that's not all that happens. We also happen to life, and we have the responsibility and the freedom to try to utilize skills, talents, personalities, the little freedoms we do have or don't have, like we get to engage in life and we can take ownership and we can take responsibility and we can make choices. And I I think that that's really how I see human suffering. My question is always like, how much of it happened to you? How much of it did you inflict on yourself? Okay, this situation is crappy and you can't change it, but what can you change? Or how can you change your attitude so the situation is less painful for you? So it's always about empowerment. I, I find existentialism, at least in the way to in a therapeutic sense, incredibly empowering, although a little exhausting because we're always like, be intentional. You're responsible for everything. And people don't love to hear that all the time.
0: <laughs> yeah. I have a really good friend who is, she's one of my most woo-woo friends. And she is always saying to her kids, to her people, to me, which I hate. She's like, whatever it is that I'm going on and on about. She's like, well, in what ways are you a co-creator here? And I'm like, look, I didn't call you for you to tell me it's on me. Okay. (laughs) But it's true. You're right. There is always, almost always some modicum of agency, however small, however, even ancillary. There's always some possibility for agency in any given situation. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. So get fast acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to Astaproallergy.com for a discount. So you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. And I really love this. And I really love your incredible segue into my next question because you mentioned your book and you just teed me right up. I love I love the title. It's on me. I love it. Let's talk about it. First of all, congratulations. There's nothing like your first book. It is your little born child that you labored over and you sent out into the world. And you're like, everybody, love my baby, please. Tell me she's cute. Yes, please. Yeah. So well done. Yeah. I know what a labor it is to, to birth a book from beginning to end. And so I'd love to hear you talk about it, maybe from a high level initially. Like, Share a little bit about it with us, the impetus for writing it, what you were hoping largely that your readers would walk away with.
1: What happened was in my 20s, I had a breakdown essentially, and I realized I felt really broken, really alone. But most of all, I had no idea who I was. And I had a moment where I looked In the mirror, and all I saw was someone like a shell of a person staring back at me. It was a really scary feeling. Like they felt so empty, so detached. And I think it was, you know, for me, a realization of I lost myself. I don't know when. I don't know how. I don't even know if I ever had it. But this life that I'm living, this person I'm seeing, is not it. There is such a disconnect, and that was a really unnerving, scary feeling for me. And then when I became a clinician, I just noticed how frequently I saw. That experience, and yet it's not something we talk about. So, my hope for this book was to introduce the concept of self loss, to try to help individuals feel empowered to create who they are, and really tackle these questions that dictate so much of our lives that we're too scared to ask, such as who am I and why am I here?
0: No two human experiences are identical, and this is a very multifaceted, very complex question. To ask and answer, but if you want to distill down, maybe the top two or three or four reasons, if you will, that we lose ourselves. I really like how you framed that. I like how you called that self-loss. I haven't ever heard anybody coin it like that, and that is a real grief. It's once you recognize it, once you look at have that, that day where you look in the mirror and go, "Where did I go?" it's so disorienting and so knowing that it's complex and there are many many reasons that could factor in here what would you say are some of the top ones
1: on a big scale societal expectations norms i think it's like if you want to belong you're going to behave you're going to become these things and i i think as much as we might want to push back and go i'm going to do this regardless of my society i, I think that's a little unrealistic because your sense of self is created with others. You're a social creature. You can't fully isolate yourself. That's not a possibility. That's when I go like create yourself, I'm not telling you to go into a cave, be in solitude for 12 months and emerge authentic, but with the freedom, we do have the responsibilities, who we surround ourselves with and how we allow it to impact us. And so I think a lot of it is expectations and pressures Another reason why we can get lost is big transitions. So you became a mother, you got a divorce, you're having a new job and it's things that roles that become so consuming that that's what we believe we are. We we start becoming performative. That role becomes all that we engage in and that is a really difficult one and tricky at any age. And then, you know, I'll give one more example which would be something like you're parents never modeled self-possession authenticity. A lot of our parents might not know who they are still. And so when you don't see your caregiver, you know, model taking ownership and alignment and pivoting and adjusting and changing, I think it's really hard for us to learn how to do that. And I think a lot of us feel this pressure of like in your twenties, figure out who you are and that's it. (laughs) When people like you're, you're changing so much, it's never a compliment. Most people do not mean it as a compliment. When in reality, I think if you're stagnant, that's where the loss happens. That's when we overcommit to one version of ourselves. And you not being stagnant, you always being fluid, I think is you understanding the assignment, which is constant creation and adaptation of yourself to fit your experiences, your contexts, and what life is asking of you in that moment.
0: Hmm. That's good. That has my wheel spinning because you are so right. I have, I mean, I'm 49. I've adapted a hundred times in my life. You know, I've changed and morphed Yay. and grown and evolved. <laughs> and and I'm thinking about all the times where my community didn't care for that. And yet I had this real sense of autonomy to do so. But I'm laughing when you say it because I'm I'm also thinking with the other side of my brain, when someone else in my world has evolved in some way or gone through a change, I'm like, I don't like it. I don't like it. It's so true. Like what we love for ourselves, we sometimes struggle to extend to our closest people to change is hard for most of us, but inevitable, hopefully, hopefully, hope I'm not the same in 10 years as I am right this second.
1: Yeah, I hope so too. And I, you know, I think we're going to have to grieve our partners, grieve our friends, because there's going to be new versions of them that, that keep pre-emerging. And it's hard to maintain relationships and you're constantly pivoting. And not only are they changing, now they're asking you to change the way you relate to them. And that's so uncomfortable. And so, you know, it's just having that freedom and curiosity towards one another, I think, is so key for healthy relationships. Stop assuming, you know, someone well enough to stop paying attention.
0: That's good. Oh, gosh. I read on your Instagram, an excerpt that you shared about a moment when a college friend asked you that just, are you happy? Which is such a question. It's such a question that is so far beyond like, how's it going? (laughs) Are you Mm -hmm. happy? I wonder if you could take my community kind of back to that moment and why that question leveled you in the way that it did, what you were going through and Why that is sometimes a good question to ask somebody that you love.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I don't think I've been asked that question many times in my life. You know, it's like, oh, did you get that promotion? Oh, you must be happy about, like, they kind of place that happiness on you. You must be happy about your daughter doing this and this. You must be happy about your aunt, whatever. So I was twenty. Four years old and I was in grad school. I was doing quite well. I kind of looked like I had my life together. So I was married at the time. I was like, wow, I found the one so quickly, you know, building a home, a community, a friend group. And I just felt like anything that that little girl maybe in a bomb shelter would have wanted, I had. And I think other people who looked at me were like, She's got it going on and really early. And I got really praised for it. The reason why I'm saying this is not, this was not a good thing. (laughs) So I'm not patting myself on the back. What happened in that moment is I was like, I'm checking things off. I'm doing it right. But in order to do that, I had to stay locked. I had to suppress so much. I had to suppress me in order to fit that mold. And so I never reflected on how I felt about my own life. 'Cause in my head is like, this is what you should want. Be grateful this is where you are in life. And keep pushing. But it was getting harder and harder to push at that point. And I think having like someone that I've known for, you know, I don't know, at that point, like eight years, sit me down and just be like, Hey, are you happy? was the first time anyone, including myself, asked that question. And I think the I was so shocked. I was devastated, but I was shocked. Like I felt so blindsided by the fact that I hated my life and myself. And I think it was the first time that I allowed myself to really have that realization. And yeah, it fully unraveled me. I think it's kind of like when you see something, you can't unsee it. And that was my moment of seeing. There was no going back. And I tried so hard because the next day I'm like packing up. I'm like going back to my house. I'm like, going back to grad school, whatever. And then I have a massive panic attack. I end up having paramedics come to the gate. I end up not being able to travel. I go into paralysis. Like that is how much my body was like, I showed you this, you're going, I'm not letting. And I became scared of my body. And I was like, how dare you do this to me? And now I look at it as a love letter because I'm like, you can't keep doing this. And I wanted to so much. And I think the fact that like, I was so determined to have this life despite having panic attacks, despite my body literally telling me I was going to die. And I think it was more of a symbol of like an existential death. I was so, so determined even after I realized I wasn't happy. It's the human nature, I tell you. But that question unraveled me and I couldn't see it. And eventually I accepted that reality. But for a while, I still resisted it. Hmm.
0: Well, that cuts real close to the bone for a lot of people. I appreciate the honesty of saying it was the first time anyone had ever asked you that, including yourself. That's a moment. That is a key moment. I went through a, a whole season of my life where I was complicit in just lying to myself. And I wanted it that way because I didn't want to deal with the answers. I didn't want to deal with the subsequent changes that would be required. I didn't want to admit that this thing that I loved and wanted and cherished and invested in wasn't working anymore. I wanted to believe that nobody else saw that. And that was some weird hidden circumstance, but the facing of it, it's the facing of it that to be honest with you, in my world, and for me, this had a lot to do with personal identity, but also my role in a marriage that I was in for a long time, the facing of it, the admitting of it, the saying what is true about the thing, like not what I wanted it to be, not what I pretended it was, not what I wanted you to think it was, but what it is, was almost harder than all of the. The rolling down the hill changes that we're going to follow, at which point you have to kind of pick up your own baton and run with it. And so I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about the truth of what it requires to harness that courage, to just look at yourself as a person, at your space in your ecosystem, at the way that you are living and relating to people who you actually are and say, this is what it actually is this is what it really is not what i wish it was not what i'm aspiring to be or not what i'm saying it is but this is what it really is can you talk about that moment because when you say panic attacks and a, a complete physical shutdown i understand that i really do i loved the idea of who i was more than who i was
1: oh my god it just so deeply resonates i i think the level of deceit is shocking and I think that that was the most painful part when I look back on it. I'm like, the most painful part of the hurt I experienced from others, from the context, from the life I created, was actually my participation in it. And my participation in a lot of it was just avoidance and self-deceit. Now, I am not hard on myself because I understand I was me coping, wishing, You know, like it came from such a pure place. So I can't be mad at myself, but I also understand that it's not something that serves me and it makes me very cautious moving forward. I think for me, and I would like to have a better answer for this, a more enlightened answer. I don't, I'm going to be brutally honest. The attacks and the frequency of the attacks got so bad that I couldn't leave my room. I couldn't function. And that's what made me take the steps for change. I like, I would like to think that eventually I would have just been like, no, I deserve better. And, and maybe, but I'm telling you from my experience, it just got so brutally bad. And I knew what the triggers were. And anytime I put myself in that context, it was, it, it felt life threatening. And I think. My body knew that. My body knew how freaking stubborn I was. The best qualities I have about myself also work against me, which is just being really dedicated and really yeah, liking me to achieve those things. Me too. And, you know, it, yeah. And, and it's just, and so I think part of it was just I couldn't handle it anymore. Like it was just so clear. My body got louder and louder where I was like, I have to face this. And I think it was only when no change became more painful. the change that I was willing to do it. And I hope that people don't have to get to that place, but I think most of us kind of do. It's like, okay, now I understand that not changing is going to hurt more than all the bridges I'm about to burn and all the ways I'm about to unravel.
0: There was a moment in my life when my life was unraveling and I was still resisting the truth, like still trying to patch it or fix it or spin it or manipulated in some way in which this, my life was not going to completely disintegrate. And I too, I was in, ended up in the ER with panic attacks, catastrophic blood pressure. I mean, through the roof, they were like, you cannot drive you. And to go straight to the emergency room. And I remember sitting on the, I'm sitting on the table. It's after hours. So I'll make an after hours care and the doctor is so dear and he's so calm and so like paternal. And I'm looking at him and my heart's being out of my chest. I've just come off a panic attack. I can't get my blood pressure in control. Tears are pouring down my face and I'm telling this man to his face. I'm actually really strong. And he's like, oh, honey. that's the degree in which we will try to self deceive yeah. I'm in the yeah. emergency room telling my doctor, I'm a really <laughs> strong person. Like I am. And he's like, okay, okay. our bodies do have limits. And they are our partners waving the red flag, like emergency, emergency. And I hate that so many of us will push ourselves to that moment before we're ready to say, okay, I'm prepared to confront this.
1: It's because we are so strong. I almost feel like the fact you were in the emergency room having a panic attack is a testament to your strength of like how willing you were to push beyond you know what you were maybe even capable of and to me it's like yeah that that's actually strength and weakness and the end of it all and i think it's a very beautiful description i'm sorry you went through that but it's like that's someone in their weakness but it, what it reflects to me is just the strength of their willingness and their dedication to something which is so powerful
0: it is powerful and on the other side of it just like you, I am grateful. I'm grateful for that, like break for that rock bottom, and and I wish I could go back and tell myself previously, before I had to get to that place, that all that resisting and all that denial was actually way more painful than just the facing of it all. You know, that yeah. was harder. That was harder. It hurt more. Yeah, for sure, it, was, it caused more agony. It was unresolvable cuz you can't deal with something true by lying about it and that was the worst of it it's actually better on the other side of it and so i want to talk to you about that i i would like to hear you because you have experienced this personally and then of course this is your practice this is what you see every day in your professional world let's talk about that side of it like what becomes possible for us when we realize or admit or embrace the idea that ultimately, really, ultimately, no matter what our story has been, we end up being responsible for who we become as people and how we live our lives. And I don't mean it to sound callous. I don't I don't mean to say no matter what has happened to you or no matter who harmed you, because no. people have been so deeply harmed it. and traumatized and abused and wounded. And those are devastating circumstances and even then what does it mean for us to say but here's my life and what am I going to do with it
1: yeah no I so get the sensitivity around that because I always have to kind of elaborate on that point as well just so people don't misunderstand it's like even if this context is unfair it doesn't alleviate your responsibility and that makes you feel even less, un- like more unfair. It's like, you know, someone else made the mess and now you have to clean up and it wasn't your mess. But the reason you're cleaning up is because you deserve to not live in a mess. Not because they deserve for you to clean it up, right? Like it's for you. It's not for anyone else. And it's incredibly fair. But at some point you have to go, this happened to me. Now what? Right. Like you, you have to ask yourself, what is the next thing? And now what is like, okay, I'm going to sit with it, Maybe I'm going to process it. Maybe, but at some point you need to start living. And the now what is how you choose to do that? What decisions you choose to make moving forward that are more informed by who you want to become rather than where you came from. And what just happened to you? That's not to say that what happened to you doesn't impact you or, you know, inform you because it does. It certainly does. You can't pretend it didn't. But you get to choose how to integrate it. You get to choose what relationship you have with it. And you get to choose how you move forward. That's where the work is.
0: Would you talk for a second about what happens when we are in that space and we decide to really examine? Our own patterns, our own responses, our own contributions to whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. And we discover some stuff we don't like. I remember, I can't count how many hours I sat on this Zoom with my therapist, and I kept wanting the comfort of someone else to just keep <laughs> saying, None of this was your fault. Mm-hmm and <laughs> yeah the thing is that's not what you guys do you damn therapists like you don't let us I just, hope
1: not you I'm, don't let us that's just not worth the
0: money <laughs> and displace everything even though sometimes parts of that are certainly merited and true and so what do we do when we finally get to get around to telling the truth about it all including ourselves and we realize that to whatever degree, big or small, hi, I'm the problem, it's me, then what?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's really important to investigate our relationship with the truth. Are we scared of the truth? Why are we scared of the truth? Why are we scared of seeing ourselves? Is truth something that we feel like, wow, if I recognize this about myself, that means I am that? Is there like a fear of like, now I'm boxed in and this is who I am? Well, I think actually the purpose of truth is to understand how you're behaving, how you're showing up in the world. And what if if you want to change something, what that would be. I think understanding it's self-serving, it's not self-blaming, is really important. And then the other thing that I say is like, the truth is there regardless if you want to see it or not. What is happening is going to dictate your life until you see it. And sometimes it takes a while for us to see it. And I think there has to be a lot of safety before we can see it. Otherwise it will feel way too threatening. So I think, you know, just spending some time of like evaluating your relationship with truth and are you safe enough in yourself to handle the truth that you're maybe resisting or avoiding? I think that that's a really delicate part of it. And we need to honor that. And then once we see the truth, I think this is where our values become really clear. Are you worth it more than the other things you're about to lose? I think until you realize like, Hey, there's a list of priorities. Here's my truth. And I'm going to prioritize me becoming this version of myself or me healing or me, whatever. If that's not t- top of your priority, chances are you're not going to make any changes. Or for some, as I said, it's like, I need this pain to stop. And usually pain is pretty, pretty up there. And it's why that's when change is created because we want to not feel the pain anymore. So I think now what is like, I see myself now what? It's like, okay, do you want to do something about it? Cause lots of people see the truth and still decide not to do anything about it. So it's like, do you want, you know, myself included? But it's like, do you want to do something about it? And I think once people decide they do or they see the genuine threat, I think one of the reasons I wanted to introduce self-loss is because I wanted to paint the actual threat. The threat of not existing, even while being alive. That's a huge threat. And I think until we understand what the consequences of our actions or inactions are, it's going to be really hard to take the next steps no idea if that answered your question, but just mm, that's no, it did. what I said.
0: I want to start wrapping it up here, but this is a quote from you. I'm just going to read it so everybody can hear it. You said, some of us knew who we were and then we lost our way. Some of us never became ourselves in the first place. We grew older, we aged, our roles and functions changed, but we never grasped our essence. We became many things: a professional, a partner, a mentor, a parent, a friend, but we never truly became ourselves. Yikes. I wonder if you can sort of wrap it up here by talking to the person for whom they just heard that and it like zinged them. Because it is one thing to have a kind of a clear understanding of who you are and lose it. You at least know where to go back. You you know kind of how to excavate the rubble. And find it again. I'd love to hear you talk to the person who's like, "I have no idea. I have no idea. I started morphing into performative like identity when I was four, and I never stopped. And I don't even know. I don't even know what's inside. Where do you start if you feel like you're looking in the mirror at a stranger and you're hell in your 40s or 50s?" Yeah, great question. First, I want
1: to level the playing field. I think if you're lost, despite if you knew who you were or not, the consequences are kind of the same. I actually think people who try to go back to a version of themselves get really disoriented. And the point is you will never be that version again. So stop trying. The only advantage you have of having had a sense of self is maybe an innate sensation or feeling of what that congruency felt like. But I don't think the self, you know, is something we find, is something we create. And sometimes actually people who had a pretty firm sense of self have it harder in terms of like, they're, they're trying so hard to embody something that is no longer them. Okay. Never had a sense of self, maybe not harder. That's the right. They're both equally hard in their own ways. I guess what I'm trying to say now, if you're someone, and I think I would probably identify with this group of like. I went into self-preservation so young that self-expression, self-awareness weren't on top of my list, not till my 20s. And I don't know if I ever had a sense of self. And I think that was really scary. I had to grieve the many years I didn't possess myself. And what I say about that is like, think about meeting someone. Think about if we really want to like reduce it to something, you know, it's like, When you go on a date, you pay attention to their body language. Are their feet pointing at you or not? they graze you in accident or on purpose? Are they making jokes about certain things? What do their beliefs seem to be? And you're hyper-focused. Like, you are just eating it up. You're like, give me more. I need to understand you. I need to, like, like, be consumed by you. So many of us have this, like, infatuation phase. And it's like, if you paid attention to yourself... I think that that would go a long way in terms of like, I divide it into your mind, into your emotionality and into your body. And it's like, figure out which three of these categories you feel the most disconnected in. Because sometimes it's hard to be like, I'm going to work on all three. So it's like, I have a really hard time for me was accessing my emotions. So that's where I started. Then I worked on my body. Then I worked on my mind. And he was like, okay, so The question, you know, I'll get people to answer is, what did I learn about myself today? Depending on which thing that you're working on, you can be like, I learned that when I am feeling resentful, I cross my arms or that I get a feeling in the pit of my stomach that blah, 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 every time someone crosses my boundary. Or, you know, I noticed that I actually feel a lot of sadness throughout the day because the couple times I checked in, it was the same emotion. Or, you know, I have this thought that's replaying, this belief that's replaying, and it's so loud that it prevents me from taking a chance. And so it's really about, like, being intentional about paying attention to how you show up in the world and then deciding if that's who you want to keep showing up as or not. Because, again, it's about creation. So you go, this is how I've been showing up. Now I'm going to try this. And, you know, uh, very briefly, I have a Julia Roberts analogy that I use in the book. And <laughs> I think that that's kind of the the wrapping it together. So Julia Roberts in Runaway Bride, no idea who from the community has watched it, has not watched it. But to summarize it, Julia Roberts plays a woman who is known for leaving men grooms at the altar. And a journalist hears about this and decides to do a story on her. So he goes to her little town and he interviews all her previous partners and, you know, kind of follows her around and chats with her. And there is a scene in the movie where they're in a parking lot yelling at each other and he goes, you're so lost, you don't even know what kind of eggs you like. And just for reference, whenever he asked the men what kind of eggs she liked, they would always say it was the eggs they liked which means she just pretended to like the eggs that the men liked. And she goes, doing this argument, it's just called changing your mind. And he goes, no, it's called not having a mind of your own. And that was a really powerful kind of interaction because it was about something as irrelevant as eggs. And then you see her a couple scenes later, home, making a bunch of eggs, frying a bunch of eggs. And, you know, at the very last scene in the movie, she's essentially talking like it was about me and me figuring out what I want and blah, blah. And it was very well written. And I love that scene of her sitting there trying different eggs and being like, does this align? Do I like this? Does this taste good? And I think that's what we have to do in life, too. Sometimes we just got to taste things. It's trial and error. It's going, I showed up this way. Did I like it? Did it align with who I think I am and who I want to be? No? Great. Next. And I think there is a playfulness, a freedom in this creation. It's messy, it's painful, it's frustrating, but it's also so fun, so liberating, so exhilarating to have that much control over your existence. And so I love that example. And I always tell people like, try all the eggs. That's like your homework. Try the eggs.
0: Oh, what a great place to end. I I love that too. That's such a powerful scene. And And I appreciate the framing that it's not just a catastrophe. If you have discovered at this point in your life, whoever you are, that you're not quite sure who you are, this can be an adventure of self-discovery. And there's so many wonderful things inside that. So many. Yes, there are going to be some false starts, of course, but what a delight to let me go let me go on a journey and figure it out. Let me, let me discover who I am. And that's not all bad news. Some of that's exciting and wonderful. And I appreciate you framing it like that. Before I ask you the very, very last question, can you just tell my listeners where to find you, where to find your book? If they want just more of what you are putting out in the world in general, where do they go?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm most active on Instagram, millennial.therapist. I also have a Substack called notes for my phone. And that's where I write a bit longer pieces and lean into more the existential questions. And it's fun. It's somewhere between a book and my Instagram content. And then my book, pretty much anywhere books are sold, you can grab a copy and please do. And tell me what you think. Awesome. Fantastic. I love the questions
0: that you're asking and putting to your community and the leadership that you're offering. I just, I can only imagine the sorts, the type of feedback that you get on the regular. It must be incredibly affirming that you have your finger on the pulse of what causes so many people a similar pain and also a path through it and forward is just wonderful and so well done. Okay, final question. I ask everybody this, every series, every guest. I borrowed this question from a priest that I love. Her name is Barbara Brown Taylor. And you can answer this however you want, whatever type of answer you want to give, like silly or serious. We don't care. What is saving your life right now?
1: Wow. Wow. <laughs> I would say work, really. And there's so much to unpack that. And some of it is good and some of it is bad. Like some of it is not not where it should be. But I think there's just so much meaning that I derive from my work. And I sometimes think how scary life would be if I didn't have that same attachment to my work, all the self-reflection. And so I think what's saving me is like this participation and feeling like I'm creating things that that are hopefully making a difference. And that to me is... Is the pulse kind of sometimes my existence.
0: I love that. Meaningful work is such a gift. It really is. It's just one of my greatest joys too. And so I don't find that a shallow answer at all. I find that deep and meaningful. So, okay, everybody listening, I'm going to round up everything, all the links to Dr. Kubrick's everything, socials, substack, book, everything. So I'll have that one spot for you. Thank you for being on today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for answering all these questions so candidly and also sharing your own personal story, which matters and means something to those of us listening too. And so- I'm just cheering for you and delighted to just continue to watch you lead and build this community of self-discoverers. And that's just going to mean so much to everybody's families and their careers and their pasts and their relationships. And so well done, you.
1: Thank you so much. You're so kind. Great way to start my Friday.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right, you guys, as mentioned, if you go over to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, I will have not only this episode link and all the show notes, but I will put links to all of Dr. Kubrick's stuff. If you'd like to just find it all in one space, her Substack, her socials, her book, everything. She is definitely, definitely a good follow. In the world right now, I really appreciate her perspective on doing this sort of interior work that ultimately creates more whole healthy versions of who we are i mean that's what we're doing here right that is what we're doing here so more to come in this incredible series we have rounded up so many interesting therapists with really specific and unique perspectives or sort of areas that we're gonna parse out in a really thorough way and i think you're gonna love it and i hope it serves you well you guys all right see you next week